we, we've created a system of real estate that where people are expected to cash in on their retirement through their housing. And that's just a recipe for disaster, right? Because our entire real estate market is built, was, was essentially built on white supremacy. So like equity is racist. And all the things that help build equity in a community are racist, right? You gotta, you gotta have like these really serene land uses. Like you know, just the way like neighborhoods gotta, the suburban neighborhoods have to be to make your property values go up. It's hella white. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hella white and it's hella never done it. I'm an historian. There is not one time in the history of American cities where private housing markets could, could digni with dignity and affordably house poor people. I'm Jacob. And I'm Tony. This is Make It Make Sense. A podcast for sharing how we are experiencing these big 2020 vibes in 2021 all over again. Let's start with some foolishness. So I know you heard about this uh, this winter storm across the Midwest, and I don't even know where to start, bro. Uh, it's like 4 million people didn't have power at the height of it early this week. Um, and millions of those people didn't have power for days, so over 24 hours, some 30, some 48 hours. 13 million Texans are or, or were recently under a boil water mandate. I'm not sure if they've lifted that yet uh, as of right now, Saturday. Um, and I think they've confirmed 25 or 30 deaths uh, because of the storm, um, but I but I think that number is going to be way higher uh, when it when it's all said and done. What you been hearing about it, man? Yeah, that is uh, oh, what a tragedy. Um, yeah. What a tragedy for sure. And I I get the weather like kind of out of mm -hmm. our control to some degree, but uh, our response to it. Well, I mean, one the fact that our, our actions is what make this these types of storms possible is is one thing. Right. Um, but I think more so right now we're kind of focusing on our response to it. Um, mm -hmm. and how like a profit-driven system allows something like this to happen. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the mayor, not the mayor, the governor um, of Texas was coming out and saying, blaming the failure of the wind turbines and like renewable energy uh, and the Green mm -hmm. New Deal, which is just an idea at this point, not even a real thing. Um, or, you know, it's just some words on paper. It's not like a, it's not <laughs> right. nothing happening. Right. Uh, you know, try to blame it on that. And so I heard, um, I heard someone breaking down how... Like how, how how does this even work in the first place? So Air uh, Aircot, I think that's the that's a utility company in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, they well at least yeah like the part of the grid that is not owned by the United States. Um, so they like you know to to create the power they predict how much power will be needed at any given time um, on any given day, and then they decide how much uh, how much of the power will come from like different power sources to meet the demand. So, you know, how much uh, wind energy are we going to use, how much nuclear, how much gas, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. or natural gas, and how much coal. So mm -hmm. they allocated 90% of the power production to come from coal, natural gas, and nuclear, and only 10% of that was coming from wind turbines. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Come to find out, even the own utility, comp utility company is saying the wind turbine was generating more power than expected. And you know what that means? <laughs> the, all the other energy sources came up way short because of the frozen water in the valves and the pipelines at the power plants. So quite the opposite of what we were told. Yeah, that that's pretty pretty incredible. It's kind of crazy that he came out and just like Greg Abbott is his name, I believe, the governor yeah, of Texas. Yeah. Just came out and straight up lied. Just just came out and just was like, <laughs> it's the wind turbines. They're freezing all over the place. And it's crazy because... Uh, El Paso, which is in West Texas, uh, which was not as heavily um, uh, affected, um, they avoided a lot of this because they had winterized uh, as a part of a, uh, after a freak storm that happened out there in 2011. Um, it, it shut shit down all over El Paso. And so they pretty much got the act together and said, we're going to winterize all these pipes. We're going to winterize all these uh, this equipment so that uh, a situation like this doesn't happen again. But the, I guess the ironic part of this uh, is that El Paso is in Texas, a part of Texas. Um, of course, but it's not a part of the ERCOT or ERCOT, um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Texas um, uh, utility. Uh, they actually are part of the Western interconnection. So because they they share their power with New Mexico and Arizona and some other places, um, they weren't, you know, a, a, beholden to the, the controls of ERCOT um, and controls the rest of Texas's power. So that's why they were able to kind of avoid some of this. Um, and I actually even saw something where they were talking about wind, wind turbines can be winterized so that wind turbines don't even, they, they you know, in Canada and, and Minnesota, right. they have wind turbines that's doing just fine. So 
Mm. Um, an incredible storm, a lot of loss of life that could have been avoided um, if we if we really invested in our environment. And uh, um, it, 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 it's given me, you know, I, I was I'm hearing a lot about Octavia Butler lately. It's given me a lot of uh, you know dystopian. A very near future vibes, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we you know, this, the, you know, the, the prophet Octavia is, is, uh, is coming. All, all of what she said is coming true. A lot of it, you know what I'm saying? So, crazy. Yeah, bro. Uh, I mean, they say if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. But I don't think mm. that that's a, goes against capitalism, I guess. <laughs> that capitalism don't that that ain't a, that ain't <laughs> the, a proverb of capitalism. Nah, Damn. nah, not unless it's dealing with you know investment in money. That's you know they stay ready for that. Yeah, these old black adages ready rooted, for that. rooted in socialism. Who would have who would have thought? Um, man, uh, have you heard your boy um, Sleepy Joe is been been a lot of chatter lately about trying to go back to school. Uh, have you heard about that? Lord, 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 I, I have heard. Uh, I don't know why. Um, I mean, it, it, make it make sense to me, my brother. You know what I'm saying? Can you explain what the hell? is a reason we are still i mean i, I don't know that we've you know we, I, I think the cases are decreasing and deaths are decreasing to some extent people are getting vaccinated but vaccines do not help with the spread i mean they don't stop the spread of the virus and we don't know enough about the virus still you know what i'm saying what, what, what is he saying so um you know these been pushing to open i think it's 95 percent uh of schools mm-hmm. in his first 100 days and there's been what they call some quote-unquote miscommunication uh, <laughs> around um, what that means. Like, is it hybrid? Is it fully back? They don't know, so uh, therefore we gotcha. don't know. Gotcha. Um, so right. CDC came out with some guidelines for how to open, also quote-unquote, safely. Um, right. And, you know, I, I just kind of skimmed the guidelines, uh, so I can't speak to it, you know, in depth. But it sounds like if you can't do that, like if you could do the stuff in there, Mm, you know, it probably will uh, lower. It mm-hmm. probably will be like a, a, a acceptably low transmission right. rate. But I mean, also uh-huh. acceptably low. Like when you when you think of it as mean? like as numbers, you know, only half a percent or whatever, whatever it might be. Like, it don't sound bad. But then if, when you start thinking about it in the terms of individuals, like uh, right. who you know, people dying. It, exactly, yeah. exactly. I yep. become a, become a lot different. Um, right. And just also to that point, like, man, you as a teacher, you know, uh, mm-hmm. these schools aren't these a lot of these schools, these, like materially deprived neighborhoods. They weren't safe before COVID. So how are you going to make how are you going to tell us you can open it safely in a pandemic? Bruh, we did not have soap in my classroom. I had to, you know, teachers buying supplies. <laughs> I had to buy antibacterial soap. I don't think I don't think our school ever. I think they did provide soap at one point, like after the pandemic became a thing before they actually shut down schools. I think that last week of school. Nick. And um, the soap was, was bullshit. It was like the same soap that they had been using that wasn't antibacterial. They didn't really allow this. So we still had to provide that stuff. These schools ain't ready for it. And I don't know that any more funding has come. I don't know that they're going to be ready. So, yeah, this it's going to be a mess, man. I, I, they, they're, they're trying to rush it. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. And, um, yeah, and what do you? And also, I feel like they're not really focusing on, like you were saying, the the vaccines don't stop the spread. Um, and if they do, we don't we don't know to what degree. If we don't any, know enough, right? Um, right. If they stop the spread, uh, so you know, even while teachers might not be getting sick, they still have to go home. Uh, right. You know, and they got family. I'm you know I'm sure. So, uh, are are their family members going to be guaranteed a vaccine? Like, uh, it sounds like there's a pattern here of folk not being prepared I, i'm just worried about people getting very caught up. i mean i think we talked about this before so so a high on you know the vaccine and quote unquote returning to normal um that we're not looking at mutations and we, we're talking about different variants that, that are coming out now but um as more people as we get to this quote unquote herd immunity and more people get this thing and have vaccine we're going to get uh, resistant strains of the virus um, and if we're just back to normal, not wearing masks, just doing the same thing we was doing before, we're going to have the same problem again. Because I don't know that we've fortified our health systems or our, our, our social infrastructure at all to deal with it still. You know, if it happens again, we look at Texas now that we can't we can't we can't afford any other emergencies. You know what I'm saying? At this point, you know, we so um, I, I don't I don't I, crossing my fingers, knocking on wood, but I don't see it. I don't see it. Not at all. Um, 
And to the la I guess last point with this, you know, you know how you were saying we're uh, not prepared. You know that meme with the my man's like rubbing his hands together like yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, I feel like yeah. that's any natural disaster. Right. Look at that at this yeah. country right now. I uh, man, if the big yeah. one hit Los Angeles anytime soon, I hope I'm out of town. I'm gonna just say that. Uh, like I said, Octavia, Octavia Butler, man, she 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 wrote she wrote that she put it down. She put it down. She in the books. She told y'all. Um, spe speaking of uh, speaking of profits, <laughs> um, you you, you yeah, you see how you, you see how I did that? Have you have you uh, have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah yet? You check that out? Not yet. Uh, not yet. I've been okay. I've been watching Veep actually. Um, Ah, oh, okay, all right. Yes, that's Dogs. pretty good. I, I, I enjoy V. So similar to what really be going on. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, I haven't yeah, seen yeah, it. Yeah, it's sure. Top of the list though. So I, my homework, I'm gonna watch that and then we can chop it up about it. Uh, we, next episode. Yeah, we, we can talk about it. I, I think um, yeah, we, we'll have a lot to talk about. And and there's definitely some uh, some some critiques, some some good things. We ain't gonna be we ain't gonna shit on the you know, but um, or I'm not gonna shit on it. We'll see what you think, but. Lots, to, lots to, uh, lots that they, you know, missed and lots of opportunities. I think so. We'll see what you think next week. Um, is it? I guess this wouldn't be a spoiler. It, it, it and it is through the lens of uh, informant, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. So they, yes. Mm -hmm. So I mean, all kinds of problems with, <laughs> yeah, just yes. Okay. And that is very much, uh, that is at the core of the issue with it. I think just like Hollywood in general. You know what I'm saying? Like the the, the angles that they choose to tell stories from is, you know, the frame that they choose is so key. And once again, um, they have chosen this particular frame um, but like I said we'll, we'll get into some of that uh, some of them critiques and, and feedback next week I think but in good news the Hampton House they raised their money so $350,000 uh, Hampton House if you haven't contributed if you did uh, they did raise that $350,000 and um, the campaign was successful so salute to them shout out to them um, um, even though the, the, the movie budget couldn't cover that at all I don't know why not but you know that's, a, that's for another time like I said, yeah. Go figure, bro. Um, man, I uh, we kind of talked about this, I think, a little bit with uh, with Jordan, but you know, at first, mm. one mask. Well, first, it was no mask. I mean, I get that how science works, yep. but from no mask <laughs> to one mask to yeah. two to two, it's like it keep changing. Um, yeah. But I, but now there just seems to be like a big focus on the quality of mask. Uh, mm -hmm. And have you? Have you been hearing anything about uh, N95 shortages? I, I I actually did not uh, did not know about N95. So not we're there again. I guess is what my my question because uh, mm. I know we had N95 shortages at the beginning, you know, last year a year ago. Um, but I thought they had ramped up production. I thought we had taken care of that to some extent because I see them all you know for sale online and stuff like that. I can get them you know pretty. It seems like pretty easily. Right. Uh, so yeah, that is that is what happened. But yet they're still uh, they're still rationing them out in hospitals and kind of mm. treating as it, treating it as if there is a shortage. Uh, and and you were right in the beginning there was so um, we were or let's say not the whole country, but like uh, for example, Boeing has a company called Prestige Ameritech, mm -hmm. uh, and all this is mm -hmm. from the AP. So prior to COVID, they were producing. 75,000 N95 respirators a month. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, clearly not enough. Um, hence mm -hmm. the, the shortage. But then, right. uh, once we got into the pandemic, um, they were producing almost 10 million, um, 10 million right. N95 respirators a month. Uh, so production right is, now. yeah, so production is way up. Um, mm -hmm. But the FDA is not, and like new companies are, are coming about and producing the masks, so because we need them, right? Um, but then those guys go through a process to get approved by the FDA, and a lot of them haven't. Uh, mm -hmm. So even though they're making the masks, like they're going unused, and they're just sitting in the hospitals. Um, and I even know, like you know, people who said they're not, like they don't wear N95 masks because um, they think there's a shortage, or they want to, they don't want to, they feel kind of. Mm -hmm. You know, they feel guilty for using it instead of letting healthcare workers get them, but uh, 100 million N95 masks a month are just sitting in sitting in a, a storage mm. somewhere, uh, not getting mm. used. So there's no shortage. It's, it's, it's manufactured. Yeah, I mean, so so yeah, like the, a, sh a shortage, and I guess they're they're, they're 
you know, st stacking them up because they don't expect or don't trust that these companies are going to continue to produce what's needed. You know what I'm saying? Like exactly. You know, we we we're we're uh, anticipating that at some point these companies are going to stop their you know production and overdrive for with you know profit reasons, right? They, mm -hmm. They're going to stop producing it because it's not making them as much money, and. Uh, Hospitals won't have what they need, so hospitals are having to, to, to stock up. It's it's um, another um, you know symptom or, or manifestation of, of of what happens when you have a profit driven healthcare system, um, and people have like you said this this like uh, the scarcity out, out of where there shouldn't be. You know what I'm saying? It reminds me of a, a report I just read in ProPublica. Um, Talking about how we waste somewhere like hundreds of millions, they, 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 you know, from two hundred million to eight hundred million dollars um, each year, uh, throwing away medicines that are, that have expired, right? And so you might say, well, yeah, they they're expired medicines. Of course, we would not want to use expired medicines, um, but we've known apparently the, the government, FDA, all these 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 organizations have known for decades that most medicines, if they're stored properly, are useful years and years even decades after their quote-unquote expiration dates um and so you know you have this this um, pharmaceutical push to, to continue to keep these arbitrary um expiration dates on, on medicines even though ain't no reason for it um, oh, a reason and the, and the military and the government knows this because they're stockpiling like you said they're stockpiling up the they're saving these medicines for years and years and years past the, the expiration date they know it saves them money but hospitals aren't allowed to do that you know, clinics aren't allowed to do that. Pharmacies aren't allowed to do that. So people are, you know, running up the price for for these drugs that, and not all of them, not everything can be kept past the expiration date, but many, many, many drugs can be. Um, and so again, just shows you like, you know, this this uh, profit yeah. in, a, in a system to keep people alive. It just don't, and, they just don't jive. And how do we even like, man, somebody need to make an app or something, let us know which medicines actually can, like what's the real expiration date? Somebody, please. All right. Get on that, right? Like there are people doing the research, but it's, but it's you know it's just not you know who who's funding that research. Exactly, <laughs> you know what exactly. I'm saying? Like who who's putting the money behind the, the money to see how much money we can save, how how much farm you know drugs we won't have to buy because we have them um, in, in in our stash already. Mm. Um, incredible, incredible, you know, just is is life saving stuff that we could be doing that that, that we just aren't. Right. Um, uh, you, have, have you heard about these? Uh, Go ahead. What was you gonna say? I was gonna say, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like you know we've been talking a lot about what's going on in the USA, um, but you know there's there's global uprisings going on all over the world right now. One of which, the biggest maybe even, being the Indian um, farmer protests. You can you tell us a little bit about a little bit about that? Oh yeah, yeah. The, um, so if if you don't if you don't know about uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi over in India already, uh, just just know that he was friendly with Trump uh, and company uh, when Trump was in in office. Uh, so you can kind of think about the type of political uh, ideology or the, the the side of things that he's on. Um, they just recently he and his political allies in India just passed uh, a series of laws, three laws, um, and kind of a, the quintessential example if you take one of them it takes away minimum food prices that the government buys food from farmers um, which basically is an income guarantee for lots of farmers which is a huge um, still a huge percentage of, of the population in India I want to say up to like 40 or 50 percent of, of, of Indians either are farmers or rely on or on agriculture to sustain themselves or to make a living um, and so for months now I want to say maybe going on three months four months uh, farmers in the Indian countryside have have just taken over the capital city, New Delhi, um, in waves of protest, basically to make uh, to get Modi and his and his crew to repeal the laws, um, so that they can again enjoy a, a guaranteed, a comfortable, stable um, uh, income for all the work that they're doing. Um, uh, the, the Indian Supreme Court actually suspended the laws temporarily. Because of all the uproar and the commotion, uh, but the farmers are like, nah, bruh, we we stand because this temporary thing ain't gonna work. We need y'all to like, you know, cancel this shit. You know what I'm saying? Repeal it for good um, because we know what you know. They're looking at the rest of the world, saying we know what happens when y'all take the, take away the price controls. We know what happens when y'all bring in mm -hmm. Monsanto seed. You know, they've they've, yep. they've been protesting about this for years and years already. So. Um, you know, really, really salute to, to the Indian farmers and, and the Sikhs over there, you know, because um, they're doing the work. And I think 
it 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 really is kind of um, just another example of the dispossession of of indigenous land from people who uh, who, who you know we're gonna get into this conversation later in the in the, in the housing conversation when we talk about Mark um, people being dispossessed of land and then relying on a, a, a new economy to kind of make themselves uh, to, to to feed themselves and, and sustain themselves pretty crazy mm. yeah I mean. Um yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely shout out to shout out to these people, man. I wish we and salute to them. Um, hopefully, we will learn from a. Hopefully, we'll learn from afar, and uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we can be taking notice from afar, uh, and people in the USA will begin to, um, you know, be able to to stand up for themselves in a way that is similar to those to the to the Indian farmers. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll try our best to keep y'all updated uh, on what. Um, so I, I, speaking of uprisings and protests, have you heard about what's going on in Haiti right now? Yes, yes. Uh, it's like Jovenel, Jovenel Moore, I, I believe is how you pronounce the president's name, is not trying to go. Um, yeah. he, he said he's, he's got more time left, more time left, uh, on his term, I guess. He's trying to think of something more clever than that, but couldn't do it. Um, so <laughs> just a quick little rundown of what's, of what's happening here. Uh, Jovenel Moy, who is the president of of Haiti, um, it's president, right? President or prime minister? He's the, the prime the, minister. Right. Yeah, he's he, the ruler. A, the H-N-I-C. ruler of the government. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he is the HNIC, I guess, of Haiti right now. Um, and he he came in like um, in the middle. Basically, he came in like twenty. I think I believe it's twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. And so that would have been his his term should be up. Uh, However, he's saying that um, he he wants the full he wants the full four years to to be the leader. But uh, I guess like similar to the USA, so you know we shouldn't be the government shouldn't be acting like they don't know how this works. If uh, something happened to the president, you know, a year into their term, and then they get replaced by the VP, the VP gonna have three years. We know it's not like now they got four years to. Right. It's not like they get a fresh four years. Right. Um, but that is what what he is saying. Um, right. And also is being supported by, you guessed it, United States uh, and other European powers like France. Um, and they are, by, you know, by supporting him, they're undermining the Haitian constitution, which both of, oh, I don't know how friendship works, but I imagine it's similar to USA. Like, it's very simple. We should know, we should know how this works. Um, it's undermining the constitution and undermining the Haitian people. And I know I have, I've also seen some of the videos where they are out in the streets deep. Uh, I think just the other day, there's like 100,000 people out there. Um, yep. But on the, on the regular, you know, it's up to 10,000, tens of thousands of people in the street uh, right. protesting for more. And another, I guess, last thing I've heard with that is uh, another thing that maybe makes it a little more complicated is like there isn't one person. It's not like the Haitian people are rallying around someone necessary not in masses i don't think mm. of who they want i could be I off you. with this but who they want to replace him with mm-hmm. but it seems like the cons- once i somebody had to fact check me on this one um but i do believe but i do know the consensus is they want more gone but my it's not as clear of who they i don't know if they support like who his who his successor might be if that makes sense yeah, I think I think the the what's supposed to happen is there's supposed to be another election now um, because or there should have been another election mm-hmm, I believe mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. in last year in 2020 um, because of this because of the the three the, he only had three years left on his term um, and so yeah they yeah I, I think there, there's going to be another election so just like we have we don't know who our next president gonna be but that don't mean you <laughs> just keep a motherfucker in there right right you you we decide who the next person is gonna be and I think you know this uh, uh, you know talk about. Um, you know, examples like this. This is uh, Haiti once again. Like we've, we've, our, our whole lives. You and our whole lives have been Haiti. Um, and the people of Haiti trying to to fight imperial powers. You know what I'm saying? Um, you talk about the Clintons. You talk about France. You think the reparations was a was a was a thing. Um, installing dictators. Um, Haitians have been have really been fighting empires this whole time. And and, and you know they they started this fight. You know what I'm saying with the Haitian Revolution way back in, in the day. So. Um, you know, whatever we can do to support, um, just let people know about it. That, you know, that that's um, you know, tap in, find out what you can. Um, there's definitely some resources on, on social media to let folks know, keep people informed, because of course, mainstream media 
is not covering this story at all. You will go to, you can go to any CNN, MSNBC. I ain't seen nobody nowhere on our on our huge, you know, the cable news networks covering it at all. So uh, really sad, but but salute to the folks um, who are in the streets every day doing what we were just doing last year. You know what I'm saying? Um, and they're doing it during the pandemic to really, right. uh, you know, to to uh, uh, overthrow the empire. Um, and so shout out to those folks. Hey, another reason to tune in to make it make sense. We got y'all where the big news companies don't. Um, <laughs> if you if you ain't if you ain't if you if, do not let us be your. <laughs> I hope that you not. This ain't your first time hearing about none of this shit that we talking about. Because if it is, yeah, get you some better news sources. I mean, it's as simple as that. It ain't even no shade. Just like get you know they're they're out there. So so mm. find them and, and and use them because it's alternatives for sure. Hey, um, it, you know, I try to be friendly to to the listeners. So if you haven't heard, you know, take this as an opportunity to continue <laughs> yes. the the learning encourage. experience. Um, yes, encourage. Yeah. We encourage you. Yes, yes. All right, all right, all right. And the stick over here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, enough enough madness. Um, let's talk about housing, bro. These are the big facts. In 2017, 46% of renter households spent more than 30% of their income to meet housing costs. Being a renter is more common among low-income households than, than among those with higher incomes. Mm. Big fact number two. Uh, the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard University indicates that between 2011 and 2017, the number of housing units... For, that were renting for less than $600 a month fell by 3.1 million units. The report found that affordable winter units are in short supply, especially in areas uh, where, they are, uh, where they were experiencing job growth before the pandemic. Mm. So people who make less can't, people who need to make more money can't afford to live close to the places that can. That, precisely oh, that. Yep. Yikes. So big fact number three. Uh, according to a report by, oof, or a report uh, that I saw in the New York Times, um, on the high end, it is estimated that it would cost between $20 billion to house everyone in the United States of America. $20 billion, equivalent to only two, the number after one and before three, two aircraft carriers. You mean we 20 aircraft carriers? <laughs> At least 20, two, two you're saying. Hmm. Two. So That's you're saying it. that we could take, we could, we could, the United States Navy could have two fewer ships to sail around bombing niggas, and we could have everybody in a crib of their own. Wow. Yeah, but if you do that, then when China bombs us, uh, you know, everybody would be inside. Right. Yeah. That's what they're going to tell us at least. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you you probably asking the same questions that we're asking after hearing facts like those. Um, most people are renting, can't afford it. Um, how we just don't have the housing units, um, and and the the cost to to fix this problem is really not that big. Um, so re- we ask ourselves after hearing stuff like that, what's stopping us from building more houses in the world's quote unquote richest economy? Mm. So this is a two-part series in which we're going to be focusing on housing to answer those questions Tony was just laying out for y'all. So with this first interview, you're going to hear more about the theory um, and history of housing from from amazing guests. Uh, And then the next episode, uh, you'll hear from two really dope organizers, you know, people on the ground who are doing organizing work to you know uh for the people and and trying to ensure everybody can be housed and and do do so legally and safely so you know we mix a little bit of theory and a little bit a little bit of praxis for that ass yeah so this is um, a really great interview uh from from brother named mark who helped us a doctor (laughs) uh who helped us understand uh really the history of how we got to where we are in terms of housing in the usa um, with millions of people sleeping on the street, uh, again, in the world's quote-unquote richest economy. Um, we're going to talk about that first question. Um, what is stopping us from building more houses? Why can't we just build everyone a home? Let's get into it. Yeah, so my name is my name is Mark Vestal. Um, I am a member of the South Central Local with the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Um, I'm also a social historian. I study the 
social history of housing or property conflict in South Los Angeles in the early 20th century. Um, I'm here today mostly in the role of a, as a historian and a, and a, and a scholar of property. And um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not currently here as a representative of the South Central Local or the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Um, I'm happy to speak to the politics and stuff that I learned from them, but I'm but but I'm not here as a representative. I didn't I didn't ask for that vote, and there wasn't a consensus for it. But so any shit that I'm talking here is just basically just me, <laughs> yeah. me and stuff and stuff that I've learned from the from the tenants union. I've learned quite a lot, um, but I'm I'm not here as a representative of their politics because we have different mm-hmm. different politics across the locals and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, but other than that, kind of disclaimer. Yeah, let's let's roll. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, with that, you know, uh, already given us lots to think about. Um, and, and we, so we, we want to kind of get to the harder issue to start off. Um, what uh, housing is is critical for survival? Um, it's a necessity. It's a need. We have to have it. Um, it's it's one of the things that a, a good society should do, right? You know, if we if we think about like it just if we boil it down to what everybody across what is universal, um, if you will, if we can do that, um, um, shelter um from the elements however you want to make it however basic you want to make it that's what we need why isn't the greatest country in the world the richest country in the world the greatest economy however you want to throw it out there the united states um and let's just talk about the the u.s the the um the U, the u.s the 48 lower 48 i guess um why can't we have housing for everyone what what are the what are the issues keeping us from having housing for everyone right now I mean, the, the the kind of like big sweeping reason would be two things, it would be settler colonialism. This is a settler colonial country. Um, and the second thing would be racial capitalism. Um, the like immediate thing that I would say is it's a political problem. And, but when I do say it's a political problem, I don't mean like we're not voting enough. I don't mean that we're not running enough political campaigns, that we don't have enough donors. That's all, I mean, <laughs> at least that I can see with most folks in that tune, that's all bullshit. We don't really care about it. Um, or not that we shouldn't care, but we know that it's it's high, it's a highly limited um, strategy, for, especially for something like a, a social housing program. Um, but when I say that I, I believe that it's political, I believe that in kind of two really deep ways. Um, one, it's, it's, constitutional right so um our particular constitution was shaped with property as one of its central concerns and this insight is coming from a book that i really enjoy a little hard to follow because i'm not a legal scholar but it's um property and the limits of american constitutionalism by jennifer nadelsky and uh, her argument is she's, she, she demonstrates how the Federalists, this is basically the colonial elite, especially Madison, um, were concerned with, because before we had our constitution, we had the Articles of Confederation. And during the 1780s, and this is such a, I think this is such a, what do you call it? Such a, such a great kind of historical echo because of right now we're dealing with this issue of rent debt all over the country, especially in Los Angeles. Um, but during the 1780s, debt was a, a huge concern too. It wasn't rent debt, it was agricultural debt. And uh, 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 paper money and also kind of hard specie like gold coin and stuff like that. Most most farmers didn't have that type of shit. They would uh, be doing things on credit and they would be paying for stuff in kind with shares. I mean, just with, with, the, with crop shares. But what ended up happening in the 1780s is that there was a, um, a, a, a debt crisis and the basically the financiers from London were calling in all of their loans. And you have farmers that didn't have any paper money or shit to pay, to pay for it um, during the 1780s. So under the Articles of Confederation, you ended up having uh, these uh, colonial legislators were taken over by what were essentially populist movements that started to uh, abolish the debt, right? Um, and for the colonial elite like Madison, they started to freak the fuck out because this is property. Debt is property too, um, and and property in that sense. Because people like when we think of property, it's just like it's like this thing over here. It's this land. It's this iPhone. But property is our political relationship to things, not to things themselves. Uh, so debt is one of those political relationships. And and the colonial elite 
they, they thought of property a little differently. It was a, it was a more broad term, but anyway, they saw that this, this uh, debt abolition or debt forgiveness, however we want to call it, they saw that as an attack on property. And for Madison and the Federalist, an attack on property is an attack on liberty. If people don't have security of property, then we can't have liberty in the United States. I mean, you can imagine if, uh, let's say you, 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 you own a car, right? And if somebody just walked up to you and just jacked you and there was just no, just strong-armed you out of it and there was no kind of accountability, could you say you have liberty? You know, so that's what they that's what they saw as this as as this kind of populism that was happening. So when they went back to the drawing board, Articles Confederation wasn't working. They went back to the drawing board to design our current constitution. And the Federalists, kind of Madison's vision of it, didn't all happen, right? He didn't get everything that he wanted, but a lot of what Madison imagined, um, what he theorized, that's what we have in our constitution, and that was its central concern: was the protection of property from populist insurgency from you from me from all of these tenants that are all flipping out and stuff like that why can't why why can't we pretty much almost no matter what find the political power in the existing system to be able to get housing to be able to get debt abolition to be able to abolish our student debt all of this other shit why is it that we can't do it that's because madison designed it that way so two ways of doing it was large election districts right so how do you keep a populist insurgency from happening how do we keep Tony and Jacob from becoming a city council member in Los Angeles? One is you have only 15 council seats for millions of people. So what does that mean? Some, 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 somebody, some, some nameless person like me is not going to be able to just to come out and say, hey, I'm going to run for the city council. People are like, who the f Right? So that's already, by having large election districts, it's going to ensure that um, people who have a lot of influence over a wide geography end up becoming those who can get elected, right? So it's not setting up a prohibition. It's not saying, no, you can't run for office. It's setting up a structure that prioritizes the elite to get into power. And we see this very easily. I mean, we could look at Congress as full of millionaires and all this type of shit. And our presidency, it's just like, it's it, at this point, it's almost nepotism, right? It's, it's this person's uh, friend, child, da, 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 the Bushes and all of that. So large election districts was one strategy. Another one was, um, distancing people from power through layers of institutions, right? So what's 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 the what's the political power we have? A fucking vote. That's it, right? It's there's no like there's no intermediate institutions that we participate in as citizens that develop our political capacity. And this is the reason why, at least from what I understand, it, the Los Angeles tenant unions take so seriously both our locals and um, tenant associations, because that's local governance that we don't have uh, officially authorized with the state, right? So d votes don't do shit, right? It's just this one vote. It doesn't build any political capacity. I don't know anything about government. I don't know anything about all this, these land use committees and all of this kind of shit, because I don't have any role in it. So we distance ourselves. Right. That's what they do. They distance us through all these layers of, of and, and then, then there was like no direct, um, no direct election of senators, I believe. Um, and there was also, I don't know if the president, yeah, the president was direct. There was also another kind of change, but even with women's suffrage, even with um, the 13th Amendment, um, even with um, other kind of direct democracy reforms that happened in the early 20th century, like the initiative process and recalls, the essential structure of the constitution and its kind of reproduction in state constitutions and city constitutions still exists. That structure still there so that role of protecting property in the 18th century now sets the limits for our political power now in the in the 21st century so that's one major political problem it's just it's just the structure of our governance prevents us or makes it extremely difficult to have a populist insurgency this is also an issue of racial capitalism here right because when we talk about populism in the United States, it's not just gonna, we can't just go, we all get together and just be like, kumbaya, let's all have a populist movement. No, cause you could just throw race into it, right? Right away. So when you, so, so the idea of populism and populist movements, and we've had a few throughout the history of the United States, um, usually succumb to, to white supremacy and racism. Uh, so that's just a whole nother thing. So aside from the fact that we have race, issues of race, 
we also have this, which is which is just about difference, right? When we think about um, when we think about capitalism, capitalism is a difference-making machine. That's what it does. Not just with race, it does. It it, it, it takes care of all. I mean, it, it takes advantage of all difference, geography, race, gender, sex, ability. If it can make a profit off that shit, it's gonna do it. Um, but then also, property is also a difference-making institution. You either have it or you don't. You know, and so that's also. We, 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 we take those apart. We put race over here and nobody really talks about property, but property is a difference-making institution. Um, so that's one kind of political thing is constitution. The other political thing is citizenship. We really, a lot of people believe in property. That's the way we've defined our liberty in this country, right? So what was the, what was the old, uh, kind of the old, the old mythology was even for black folks, 40 acres and a mule. That's real shit, you know, because that's how you're going to produce your economic security is having that land and being able to grow food. And that's the and that was the kind of political vision for this settler republic was mass land ownership. I'm thinking about Jefferson's vision, mass land ownership. But that obviously what that vision ended, let's say in 1900, when once we get to 1900, we kind of we hit, we hit a new point in our history when close to the majority of the majority of people now live in cities. And so we ended up having this period in our history, let's say from after the Civil War, so let's say 1866, through the early 20th century, where nobody really knew what the material basis of American of, of US citizenship would be. If it wasn't gonna be land ownership, because that was all being consolidated by speculators and, um, and industrializing farming, what was it going to be? And that's one reason why I would, I'm saying that our, that our labor organizing from, the, from after the Civil War into the early 20th century, let's say into the Great Depression, was so fucking militant because we didn't have a material basis for citizenship and that was being fought out over the wage. What was the wage going to be? How much, you know, the idea of a living wage wasn't a thing yet. So folks are fighting. You, you have uh, wars that are happening in like West Virginia, happening in Colorado's in the mines really i mean iww really militant labor organizing that's happening so so, so um, basically like just just to jump in real quick like kind of yeah. simplify it it's like this transition from the land is my sustenance the land like gives that we, we depend on the land to like to um um like make ourselves we produce our lives to mm -hmm. when we move to the city now we don't have that option we don't have land to do that so now the only way that i can reproduce myself is through the wage like I have to yeah. battle out on these grounds because I don't got that. I don't have that land base no more. I don't have the yeah. commons, so I got to. Right. I got to get money. I got to get a check. You know what I'm saying? I got to get a wage. Yeah. Then it ended up being home ownership. Mm -hmm. So that was the. So we had that period where, because home ownership used to be the, the rate of home ownership in the United States used to be pretty low, even for white people, thirty oh. percent. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and once they worked that out, once they that with the FHA and the transformations of the mortgage market in the post-war period right. that's what created it for white people right and so that home ownership became the new material basis for u.s citizenship so even if we were to restructure our governance around this issue of the constitution um, we still have the issue that people are deeply deeply invested in property and understanding the acquisition of property as as the way that you exercise your liberty when people say like, oh, I'm free, or you go to a college student and say, hey, tell me about what success looks like for you. They're gonna say, oh, I'm gonna get a job and I'm gonna buy a home, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, or I'm gonna buy stuff. Like pr property acquisition is a really important part of people's understanding of liberty. So those, those, are, those are two political issues that are just like really deep and fundamental. And there's just the issue of capitalism. Public housing doesn't, public housing doesn't create accumulation. Real estate markets do. And we have a political system in this country um, that put our house, that put our housing, our residential housing in the market. Didn't have to, I think capitalism can't exist with residential housing outside of the private market. It doesn't, there's nothing necessary about that, but it's already happened, right? We already, we already have that going down. Um, so if we were to create social housing, we'd have to carve it out of mm -hmm. a private housing market, mm -hmm. which is basically a form of abolition, mm -hmm. right? And abolitions, abolition causes wars. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, black folks are here as not enslaved people, 
because of because of a really big fucking war. Um, so that's I, I would say that's the stakes of of a social housing program. It doesn't mean it has to go to that, but it definitely has that potential. So those those are those are some of the really deeply fundamental issues for why I believe we don't have social housing for everyone. And that we can kind of like build up to more uh, like recent sub superficial kind of political issues and fights and things like that. Um, in terms of just like a political back and like a political history, like why we don't have public housing as opposed to some other social housing program, but the traditional public housing, it, it was kneecapped by the real estate lobby and red baiting after 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 World War Two. Could um ah that was super helpful. Uh, could you maybe speak to like a local um a local situation in LA? Given that we have, is it not the is it the largest unhoused population or one of if not the it's definitely one of the largest uh, unhoused population in the country? Like um I guess speak to a, a local situation that's like keeping us from just building houses and be able to put uh you know put people in them or putting people in the vacant houses and apartments that already exist like what's what's getting in the way mm, i mean there's i would say, and there's a few things i think that there isn't there is there isn't enough political pressure right um politicians aren't going to do something that unpo potentially unpopular with property unless there's a whole and we have to create an emergency we have to we have to break something for them to do something to fix it um and unhoused people are already doing that um they're occupying the streets and the parks and the alleys um everywhere right the, the freeway underpasses the freeway on ramps. They're 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 occupying land all over the city, and so they they're they're helping create this emergency that's forcing public officials to try to remedy it some kind of way. But they're always going to try to remedy it the way that's the most reformist, that's disturbing things the least. Um, so there are uh, programs that are happening in LA that are trying to put people into housing. Things like um, there was a Project Room Key. Uh, then there was now there's Project Home Key, um, which is looking to permanently house people. But the the reasons why this stuff isn't working, or the reason why it's working slowly, or the reason why it's there's a lot of reasons. Um, one is the fact that I don't think cities really have the financial capacity to be able to do social housing on their own. Um, the old public housing program was a federal program. It was federally funded. And I think we'd have to go back to some type of federal kind of budgetary model in terms of just getting the, the resources together. Um, the other reasons why this stuff's not happening is really honestly like, politicians, our city governments, and most housed people just don't give a damn about unhoused people or, or housing insecure people, right? And what we would need to be able to house those folks or house un housing insecure people to house them securely would damage real estate markets, right? Uh, because when I, when I think of housing people, I want them to be housed where they wanna be housed. But when housed people think about housing unhoused people, they want them the fuck out of their neighborhood. Get them, get them away from me. I don't want, I don't want their encampments. I don't want their smells. I don't want their bikes. I don't want their pets. I don't want to see their music, their food. I don't want to see any of them. I just want them off the street. Um, even if they're really liberal and like really nice about it. Like, like, yeah, you know, I want them in a nice shelter or in permanent supportive housing, but not in their neighborhood. Um, so there's, yeah, NIMBYs. Um, so there's, there's significant, we, we've created a system of real estate that where people are expected to cash in on their retirement through their housing. And that's just a recipe for disaster, right? Because our entire real estate market is built, was, was essentially built on white supremacy. 
So like equity is racist and all the things that help build equity in a community are racist, right? You gotta, you gotta have like these really serene land uses, like you know, just the way like neighborhoods gotta, the suburban neighborhoods have to be to make your property values go up. It's hella white. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hella white and it's hella classed, right? Um, like I live on 93rd in Normandy, I live in the hood. And and the way people use land down there, we got car, broken cars in the, in the lawn and there's stray dogs running around and people throw, put their trash out on the curb. But this is the way we do land use there. But if, if we were, if folks were really, really tough on trying to build equity in their properties, oh, there'd be like a neighborhood association and they'd be complaining about this and that and there'd be all this policing about it and yada, yada, yada. But essentially that's what we do with all of our real estate. It's, it's, to, it's, it's, to, it's to make it piggy banks for people and then that, and then they're gonna they're gonna turn into shitty citizens, yeah. right? Like 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 fuck what you got going on, you know? Like I gotta make sure, I, and 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 I'm not blaming them for that, right. because we don't have a social safety net. Like if you don't get yours, then you're gonna be an elder and you're gonna be out on the street, yeah. or you're gonna be elder, you're gonna be put into a state facility. Like the the cost of not having that nest egg is super severe. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like just like yelling at people who are because black people are doing that, yep. and black people have been trying to buy housing and buy land and build that equity through this atrocious wealth gap. The wealth gap in Los Angeles, I think right now is the median, the median white wealth in Los Angeles is $355,000. And for black people, it's $4,000. Mm. Um, and this is a wealth gap that's opened up, you know, for the millennials that are out there, this is a wealth gap that opened up during your lifetime. Um, from 1984, I think there was a chart that I saw we can see the wealth gap just, it just, it balloons through the 1980s, through the 1990s, through the 2000s, and then the 2008 crash hits, and that wipes out what, 69% of black wealth in the country? Um, so we were already in this huge gap, then that housing crisis hits, and then that wipes out the equity itself. I mean, that just shows you the ricketiness of this equity model. Um, but those are some of the issues. I mean, there's a, and it's, this is a real estate town. Right, Los Angeles is a it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's this is a global city. We have global flows of capital flowing through Los Angeles now, flowing into our real estate markets that are that are there to make money. And social housing, dignified housing for unhoused for either unhoused people or housing insecure people is not making them money. This is the reason why they're not building housing for poor people. If they could build housing for poor people and make money off of it, they would. And you, and you know when they did, you know what that, they were tenements, slums. That's what they do, you know? So it's like when they're, they were completely unregulated, that's what you get. You get, I mean, you New York, you know what I'm saying? You get, you get early 20th century tenements where people are dying from fires, uh, communicable diseases. They're falling down elevator shafts. They're, um, <laughs> I mean, that, you know, yeah. So all of that, you know, so it's like, Private housing can't do it. They've never done it. I'm an historian. There is not one time in the history of American cities where private housing markets could could digni with dignity and affordably house poor people. Never, right? So imagine if anything, like if if somebody was going to try to solve a problem for you and you'd be like, hey, has this ever worked? And they were like, no, nah, it's never worked. Not for not for over a century. It's never worked, dog. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, let's keep doing that. But that's what Mary Garcetti's doing. They're over here trying to like, oh, we're going to get more house, but we're going to build more housing and yada, yada, yada. Like, like, bro, like that shit's never worked. Yep. Now, one time, why are we talking about this still? And the reason why we keep doing that is because we don't have a memory of its failure. Right. right? Tenant tenants don't have like, like ask yourself, what's the, what's the history of eviction? Is there like a history you can, a history of eviction we could tell? We have, a, we've, we've had American cities for over a century. Um, you know, places like New York and Manhattan for even longer than that. Going back into the going back into the 18th century, do we have a history of eviction? And do we? Radical, yeah. More more of like solidarity going on with evictions, right? And then we currently see, right? Because you know whole neighborhoods would show up depending on when we talk about that history in certain places. Right. What right. it would look like right now? You, your neighbors looking at you like, oh damn, I'm so, just so too bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. lying for you. Yeah. Right. Because there's not like a there's not like an identity. Because mm -hmm. part of what an identity and tenancy is is to have a history and a memory. Right. right. We don't like you. So you would like the, an old blues songs that I listen to um, and, and, and some jazz music. They talk about landlords. Right. I mean, you go to like Mississippi blues, they're going to talk shit <laughs> about landlords, the agricultural landlords. 
And so the, but this is also like a media issue. Like when, let's say if we watch uh, like Friends, right? Mm. Friends, like these are some white folks. Um, yeah, now everyone wants to, yeah, right. Um, well, everyone wants to be a landlord. Don't even get me started on that. One of my favorite shows. Let me, I'll just go on and say this. So there's this show that I like. You ever seen Shameless? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, lo- I, I, I love that show until like season eight. Then in season eight, they made Fiona a landlord, uh, the main character, and it was disgusting. Not because she's a, it was just, anyway, it just, it just wasn't very smart in terms of the writing. Um, but uh, I lost, I lost track of what it, I just, I like the fact that you brought that up. But um, on, you, you mentioned Friends, uh, like, like. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. This, this, so, this, so, media so, around, yeah. yeah. So in Friends, in Friends, you can have, um, you have all these white people living in what was probably like, who knows? I mean, you're from New York. How much would that apartment be? Right? Something wild. Yeah, crazy. In Manhattan. Something wild. Yeah, right. But yeah. you notice, you notice that they're they have no tenant life. There's no tenant mm-hmm. lives in that. They they never have a problem with their landlord. They never talk about the rent. They right. never talk about you see what I'm saying? There's no depiction of the political relationship uh-huh. of tenancy in their lives. And did we do it for other stuff? Like so in the show, they show marriage and they show romantic relationships uh, and they show work relationships, but they don't show anything about tenancy. That makes me think of the PJs and it, it was canceled, but like this, like, and I'm thinking about like, you, you mentioned like this tenancy in, in black shows, like it, it, Martin, I'm thinking about, you know, like this uh, uh, in living color, the, the relationship with landlords and, and, and or the elite, right? That, that kind of like people with money and people without, people with property, people without, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Um, um, it comes up, not addressed always the best way, but it comes up. I never thought about that with, with, with friends or even sex in the city, people bring up like sex in the city is crazy. Like how was she able to afford this, you know, the lifestyle with, with, with on a salary and, you know, a struggling writer, right? Um, but yeah, this creating this illusion of um, um, that it ain't a part of life. Like this is not something that you do. Exactly, yeah. and it creates the illusion historically, right? Cause what, we have a private housing market overwhelmingly private housing market. The assumption is that our history of housing is a history mm-hmm. of contracts that were that worked, mm-hmm. right? But we know that that's not true. So we can look right now in Los Angeles with the with the with the um, with these eviction moratoriums, and there's just illegal evictions left and right. And they're not just like asking people to leave. People are fighting. Landlords are sending goons to people's houses. They're locking people out when they're at work. They're throwing out all their stuff. You know, this is these are violent evictions that are happening. Um, there's an assumption then historically that our history of the housing contract is not a history of conflict. And this is this is part of the work that I do is to go back and find that conflict, find those murders, find that fight, find that when that tenant set that landlady on fire because that happened. Find it when that when the, when the, when that landlord showed up with a gun to tell this black tenant to leave. And then when he came back the second time, the tenant shot him in the back with a shotgun. Like that's part of our housing history. Um, and that's part of the history of the housing contract. So one, so I think part of it is that when we, when we, when we, when we look to that history and we start to gather up that tenant identity, historically, we end up finding that tenancy is, a, is, a, is one is a highly oppressed and exploited political relationship in the United States, but also it's a highly contested one. Right. That and so our uh, our commitment to private market housing has a body count. Like there are there are there are there are deaths right now. I mean, there's a body count right now. Every day, there's unhoused people dying in the street. Um, but there's also people dying over their struggle for housing. You know, hey, you got to go. No, I'm not leaving. Boom, knife comes out. Somebody gets killed. It shows up in the news is like this person getting stabbed or something. But the housing part of it never comes up. Cause we just don't, we don't record it that way. You know, and people just stress the fuck out. Like they're with a house trying to do it, work two, three jobs so they can have a roof over their head. Uh, right. Sounds like homework, uh, light your landlord on fire. Stab. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just... I'm not sure if we got to all the, all the questions. Nah, but no, the, I... The, I think the last one is homework. Yeah. I think that's the, to, to kind of think about, um, uh, what, what, if, if, if we're gonna give, if people are gonna like, if we want people to think about uh, housing uh, with, uh, without uh, track the historical relationship to, to the private markets or to, for people to see housing mm-hmm. outside of 
um, property or shelter outside of, uh, of a real estate market, what are resources that people can go to? Like, what if we want to read up on this some more, um, um, or if we want to pull these ideas, who's what, what are some of the ideas that are out there? Like you said, you mentioned like this land commons um, before. Mm-hmm. What, if, what, are, what are some of the smart people thinking about in terms of housing, how to solve this problem outside of government, you know? Um, I don't, I mean, we, 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 we discuss it. Like there's a, there's a reading group in um, the tenant union that has discussions about, about, about theory and strategy. Um, and I don't, I honestly don't have a, an answer to how we get to social housing, but I think the closest of an answer that I have at this point um, that I've, that I've learned from the Los Angeles tenant union is, is essentially is building, is building tenant power. Um, and doing that at least two ways. One is through building tenant governance. So building parallel institutions like, uh, tenant, tenant unions, tenant locals, um, uh, uh, tenant associations, but they don't have to be there. Historically, there have been other types of, um, for other forms of tenant governance. So there have been like, um, what they call the voluntary rent boards that happened during some wars during World War One. It also happened during World War Two, where it would be a board of both tenant and landlords. And if a landlord wanted to raise the rent, then they had to basically take that rent raise mm-hmm. to this board and then it would get negotiated. But then the landlord would have to show his books mm-hmm. to be like, okay, if you're gonna raise the rent five dollars, let's say this is 1946, and you're gonna raise the rent five dollars, well, let's see your books. You just raising a rent because you're just doing it. Or you do, you know, what is this money going to be? And some, and some early proposals uh, around this was another one in the uh, after World War One. There was a, there was a, some tenant organizing happened in Los Angeles, and they were demanding the city council pass a law that would cap like the amount of rent that a landlord could raise, and then if anything over that, then they would they would have to go into like a community fund, mm. <clears throat> so that. <clears throat> So that basically like there, there was a, an allowance for the landlord to make some profit and then the rest of that money went into like a like a like a kind of a community trust. <clears throat> wow. So there's a whole bunch of and globally, we can probably learn a whole lot from people all over the world in terms of building tenant governance, but that would be one. And then the and then the other, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, would be building entitlement. <clears throat> And one way that um, I was to uh, uh, Leo from Union, Union de Facinos, and <laughs> he had a wonderful idea about uh, like a repair brigades, basically like tenants doing repairs on their own housing. <clears throat> and that like, like imagine if you started doing all the repairs on your place, like and you did it for five years. That's it, you would have an investment in that, in that home, right? you would have an entitlement to it. And so when Leo shared this with me, I thought of like a reverse equity, mm-hmm. right? It's not, a, it's not an entitlement to because the value of your home rose. It's an entitlement because you put, sweat equi- you put sweat into it. And so you're building a reverse equity by one, living in the housing, but then two, uh, putting labor into the housing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all other ways that we can create entitlement. We can, we can produce histories. We can organize together. We can we can have community with each other. We could repair infrastructure in our communities <clears throat> on our own. There's a whole bunch of ways that you can create entitlement in a space. But what entitlements do with governance and entitlement is they create conflict, right? Because then if I have a if I have an entitlement to my space, if I have an entitlement to my home, and somebody tries to put me out, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I, mean, I my family's been evicted when I was younger, and I had no entitlement. Right. Somebody would show one day my auntie would just be like, hey, we got to go. And I'd be like, OK, let's bounce, because that was like the that was the relationship that I had as a poor person of color in the city is when somebody told me to bounce, I bounced. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it wasn't it wasn't like me surrendering. I didn't have an identity with that, with that, with that, with that apartment to say, like, this is a home that I'm willing to defend. Right. Right. But if we start to produce that entitlement with people and then and this would take years. Right. But we start to produce that entitlement and then folks try to come in and move you. There's gonna be a fucking fight, yeah. right? And you might lose, but there, there. Um, when Leo said it, Leo said, if you do, if you build, if you if you build tenant power. Um, appreciate all of this. 
um, um, giving us the history and the, some of the theory behind uh, why we don't have housing for everyone yet um, and why, why that's um, at odds with, like you said, the constitution, the, the, the makeup of the country, the identity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think I would, in terms of resources, I would say pretty much anything on mutual aid. I think mutual aid is that mutual aid is that driver. Um, there's an organization people for people in Los Angeles that is doing wonderful mutual aid work, um, that started during the pandemic and it's pretty much serving a, a community in South Los Angeles that that nobody that nobody else is serving the state the city's definitely not serving them and so these those mutual aid networks are a phenomenal way of creating that both entitlement but also creating um those political relationships and those social networks yeah yep. um that because it also serves as an alternative form of governance mm -hmm. you know so yeah I would say that's a major resource would be any mutual aid anything cop watches would be another um yeah great uh yeah thanks thanks so much um jake, jake you got any any last words any final words before we go uh no nah, no nah, mark other than um definitely appreciate you that was really dope uh yeah thank you for your time i'm about no, to yeah hold <laughs> so let's pull over right here and, and kind of summarize what what mark is talking about uh basically the founding fathers created a system that at the same time made it easier for the wealthy elite to control access to land by buying property or giving that property away in the form of land grants, while at the same time making it harder for the masses of indentured servants, slaves, and natives, and later on their descendants, to change that system through political means. Mm. And, uh, and then whenever we've clicked up to change the system, white supremacy divides the coalition. Their go-to in the playbook, um, divide and conquer all right y'all thanks for listening to find out more about the show or to share feedback or to just say what's up follow us on instagram at mems.podcast and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts hey and we'd really appreciate a five-star rating to help boost the show um for more people to see especially y'all who just found out about some of these revolutions from us and not from the news it's the least you could do um and oh yeah and also a big shout out to nino appreciate you nino uh on the edits you need uh your podcast edited you need a, a music video shot you need pictures taken hit up nino at a shot by nino on instagram um and that's it peace <laughs>